you would open your Bibles to the book of Esther. Uh, before Proverbs and Psalms and Job in the Old Testament. Uh, if you need more help than that, there's a table of contents in the front of each of our Bibles. Uh, great, great tool that we shouldn't be embarrassed to use. The book of Esther. And today we're going to be in chapter 1, 1 through 8. And the title of this sermon is An All-Powerful King? Question mark. Uh, as I said today, we're going to be kicking off our series through this amazing book, Esther. Uh, I'm excited about this book for so, so many different reasons. Not only are there core truths about God that we'll learn, but these truths are incredibly relevant for us as Christians today. Isn't God's word amazing like that? The book of Esther, written about 2,500 years ago, having specific application for a group of Christians in Santa Cruz County. That's mind-blowing to me. My goal this morning is to give us a general intro to the book, hitting some pertinent context and key themes, followed by us diving into the actual text in the first chapter of Esther. In other words, I want to start by zooming way out, giving us some tools and lenses through which to read Esther, and then I want us to zoom in on the first eight verses of the book. Sound good? All right. Well, let's begin by understanding where this story takes place, both geographically, historically, and biblically. Geographically, the book is set in Persia which is modern-day Pakistan, to the region of South Egypt and everything in between. You can kind of see it up there on the map. Um, Susa is the, one of the capital cities that, that's circled there. We'll talk more about that later. Now, this uh, would have included Jerusalem and all of the cities that we read about throughout most of the Bible. What I want us to see, even by looking at this map, I know you can't see all of the, the city names on there, but what I want us to see is that it was a vast empire. So that's the geography. Now let's talk biblically and historically. I hope that this section this morning not only gives us lenses through which to view Esther, but really all of the Bible. If we break the biblical storyline down... You can break it into four or maybe five words. So if anyone asks you, what's the storyline of the Bible? This is it in, in its essence. Creation, fall, redemption, completion. Or creation, fall, promise, redemption, completion. Uh, what we're doing here is an uh, exercise called biblical theology. So some of you might have heard the term systematic theology or historical theology. Uh, what we're going to do here is called biblical theology. Fantastic, helpful book on this. It's one of these little nine marks books. And so uh, I'm going to hand these to Rob and the first two people to come talk to him after the service. These are yours. Um, really helpful introduction to how to view the Bible through these lenses. So creation, fall, promise, redemption, completion. Now, I didn't intend on saying this, but I'm going to anyway, because I think it'll be helpful. Have you ever noticed 
As you listen to these things, creation, fall, promise, redemption, completion, have you ever noticed that that's the shape of each and every one of our services here on Sunday? We begin our service with a call to worship, with God's word speaking forth into creation, our service. We have a time of confession of sin, where we recognize the fall, not just generally, but in our own hearts. And then we have a moment where we remember the promise of God, that he's come to redeem us through his son, Jesus Christ. And then we complete our service with blessing and benediction. That's the shape of every single service that takes place here at Santa Cruz Baptist. And that's not just because it's Drew's good idea. It's the shape of the the biblical storyline that's molding and shaping us as his people every time we gather. Churches have been doing this for centuries, taking this storyline and using it as the structure for their services. So that's why we do what we do. Creation, fall, promise, redemption, completion. Let me very quickly walk us through the storyline of the Bible. And I want us to understand that how Esther fits into this storyline is key. Okay, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. He created man and woman. He created them to be in relationship with him. He placed them in a beautiful garden home and provided for them richly. He only gave them one rule. You can eat from every tree in the garden, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. He was like a generous and loving parent who, for the good of their their kids, says, you can play anywhere you want. Play in the living room. Play in your bedroom. Play in the backyard. Play in the front yard. But do not play in the street. God, as a good and generous father, loved his children who he created. That's act one, creation. But we know the story. They rebelled. They listened to Satan, that ancient serpent. They sinned against God and ate of the one tree that they weren't supposed to. They became afraid of God and full of shame. They realized that they were naked. They hid, tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And unfortunately... Because Adam was a representative head of all mankind, when he fell, we did too. His sin disease would transfer to every human in history. They deserved death on the spot for cosmic treason against a holy God. That's act two, fall. But God... Being rich in mercy and full of love, he pursued his children. He called out to them. He went after them. He spelled out the consequences of their sin. And in the midst of this, God made a promise to his children. And this promise is going to become a trellis for the book of Esther. So tune in for this. 
In the midst of of him telling the consequences for their sin, he says this in Genesis 3.15. He's he's speaking to the, the serpent Satan, and he says this. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Do you see that? God promises that there will be enmity between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve. But that the offspring of Eve, while bruised, will crush the head of Satan. What is this promise? It means that from that point on in history, there's going to be open war between God's children and those working on behalf of Satan. It means that one day there would be a seed or an offspring who would come along and defeat Satan for good. This was a great promise. A promise of hope. A promise of future victory for God's children. It was a truth that they could rely on, especially when things got hard. Act 3, promise. Then... Just at the right moment in history, the the Son of God, Jesus Christ, became flesh. He was born to the Virgin Mary. He lived life perfectly and obeyed God fully in every single way. As the promised seed from Genesis 3.15, he succeeded in every way that Adam failed. He, like Adam, was also a representative head for all who would repent and believe in him. As our representative, he went to the cross and died in our place, taking the penalty that each and every one of us deserves, death, allowing us, his children, to go free. He redeemed us. He died, was buried, and rose from the grave three days later, defeating sin and death crushing the head of Satan with the exact instrument that Satan thought was going to crush the head of God. Remember this. This point will also come up in the book of Esther. That's Act 4, redemption. Finally, one day, Jesus will return for his people. We will be taken to heaven and perfected. No more sin, no more death, No more tears. We'll spend eternity with Christ, worshiping him forever and feasting with him joyously. A never-ending party that's rightly focused on God's glory. Act 5, completion. Creation, fall, promise, redemption, completion. That's the biblical storyline. Now, Where's Esther in that story? After fall, and in the midst of the promise, right? This is important, and here's why. I'm going to repeat this a bunch of times in this series, but an interesting facet of the book of Esther is that God isn't explicitly mentioned even one time. He's somewhat hidden 
We're going to explore this a lot. But because that's true, how can we preach Christ from this text? Some throughout Christian history, including Martin Luther himself, wrestled with Esther even being part of the Christian Bible because of this. God isn't mentioned. Prayer isn't mentioned. Worship isn't mentioned. In fact, there will be a lot of moral ambiguity in this text, with the main characters doing some iffy things. How can we preach Christ from this text? Why is that even my leading question? Luke chapter 24. After Jesus' resurrection, he's walking on the road to Emmaus, and he ends up talking to these women. They don't recognize him. And he says this. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And check this out, verse 27. In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you see what's being said? Moses is code for the law or the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses. The prophets are at the other end of the spectrum. But Luke is saying, using the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. A couple verses later in Luke 24, Luke writes this in verse 31. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? See, they're understanding the Old Testament in a new and clearer way, using Jesus as the lens through which they read. Let's keep reading. A couple more verses later, Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. Verses 44 and 45. Then he, meaning Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Wouldn't that have been an amazing Bible study to be a part of? It's going to be exciting someday when we get to sit around with Jesus and say, okay, help me see it better. Help me see the Old Testament rightly. Again, Jesus is telling them and us that all of the Old Testament points to him. This is a bedrock belief of mine. It's my grid for reading scripture, studying scripture, and definitely preaching scripture. I believe that the whole Old Testament points to Christ. So, the question isn't, does Esther point to Christ? But how should we preach Christ from Esther? Okay, now, do you see why understanding where we are in the biblical storyline is important? 
If we're post-fall and in the middle of promise, but not yet to redemption, what piece of the puzzle is Esther trying to fill? I would like to suggest that Esther, aside from teaching us huge truths about God and us, it does do that, but it's reminding us of the promise and pointing towards redemption, which is ultimately going to be fulfilled by Christ. As we walk through Esther, don't forget this. We're going to see two seeds at war with one another. The seed of Satan, represented by Haman in the story, and then the seed of Eve, or the people of God, represented by Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people as a whole. So is God's promise from Genesis 3.15 still alive? That's the question being asked and answered in this book, even when God appears to be absent. And this is where the timeline of this book even comes into play. For just a moment, let's consider Jewish history. God, in the book of Genesis promises Abraham not only offspring, but land, the land of Canaan, the promised land. Well, eventually, via the story of Moses and the Exodus, God's people end up as slaves in Egypt, which is not in the promised land. Has God forgotten his promise? No. He saves them miraculously in the Exodus. They're moving through the desert. And eventually, in the book of Joshua, they end up back in the promised land. But in 612 BC, this little country called Babylon comes to prominence as the world power. In 605, King Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem and takes captives. We learned all about that in the book of Daniel, right? That's 605. Once again, God's people are in captivity, in exile, away from Jerusalem and the Promised Land. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem a third time, destroys the city, and burns their temple. To be clear, Israel's sin and rejection of God led to these things happening. But if you're in that moment, you might be asking the question, has God forgotten about us? Has, has he forgotten the promise? Is Genesis 3.15 even real? The seed of the serpent seems to be winning. Well, in 539, King Nabonidus, the, the, the last Babylonian king, the ones who conquered Israel, he, he fights and he surrenders to a Persian king named Cyrus the Great, which leads to captive Jews being allowed to return to Judea and rebuild build Jerusalem and its temple. You following? So Babylon has now been overthrown by Persia, who would rule until 331. And it's during this period that Esther takes place, during the reign of Ahasuerus from 486 to 464 B.C., and it's important for us to know that when Cyrus, who was Ahasuerus' grandfather, 
when he allowed Jews to return to Jerusalem, not all of them went. In fact, most of them didn't go. Only 42,000 returned to begin rebuilding the temple. A lot of them stayed, including Esther and Mordecai. So why walk through all of this history? Because the setting of Esther and what's going on in Jewish history at that point is vital to understanding the question that's being answered. So, what's the question? Well, it's several questions. Two of which are, where is God? Where is God? And, does he even care about his people? Where is God? And does he even care about his people? Is the promise of Genesis 3.15 still valid? And, and should his people still have hope? That's the context and the backdrop to this book. And I'll just go ahead and answer the questions from the beginning. Question one, where is God? Maybe you've had that question before. Or even right now. You, you, you look around the world at all of the horrible things happening. And you just don't see God miraculously intervening. You don't see the Red Sea being parted or, or manna coming down from heaven. You don't see God obviously stepping in. Where is God? That's a real and honest question. While God isn't mentioned and can seem almost absent in the book of Esther, he's there, even when it doesn't seem obvious. Mark Dever, along with many other Bible teachers, concludes that Esther is one of the longest sustained meditations on the sovereignty and providence of God in the whole Bible. It is really just one long narrative illustration of Romans 8.28, which we read earlier. God is all over the place in Esther, in what some would call coincidences. One Old Testament survey rightly says that coincidences in Esther are the fingerprints of God's hands at work. I love that. Coincidences in Esther are the fingerprints of God's hands at work. Again, Dever points out somewhat sarcastically that a ton of things just seem to happen in Esther. Follow this. Esther just happens to be Jewish, and she just happens to be beautiful. Esther just happens to be favored by the king. Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot against the king's life. A report of this just happens to be written in the king's chronicles. Haman just happens to notice that Mordecai does not kneel down before him, and he just happens to find out that Mordecai is a Jew. When Haman plots his revenge, the dice just happen to indicate that the date for exacting revenge is put off for almost a year. Esther just happens to get the king's approval to speak, but then she just happens to put off her request for another day. Her deferral just happens to send Haman out to Mordecai one more time, which just happens to cause him to recount it to his friends. They, in turn, just happen to encourage him to build a scaffold immediately. 
So Haman just happens to be excited to approach the king early the next morning. It just so happens that the previous night, the mighty king could not command a moment's sleep, and he just happened to have had a book brought to him that recounted Mordecai's deed. He then happened to ask whether Mordecai had been rewarded, to which his attendants happened to know the answer. Simply consider for a moment the fact that Mordecai happened not to have been rewarded for having saved the king's life. How unusual that must have been. Someone who saved the king's life, never rewarded. Well, it just happened. Haman happens to approach the king just when the king is wondering how Mordecai should be honored. Later on, the king happens to return to the queen just when Haman happens to be pleading with Esther in a way that can be misconstrued. The gallows Haman built for Mordecai just happens to be ready when the king wants to hang Haman. Do you see the point? God is there. He's in control. And every little detail matters. None of the things that happen in this book are miraculous. They're more mundane. Yet, God is working through all of them for his purposes. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God's sovereignty is all over this book. Yet, there's also human responsibility, isn't there? In the midst of all of these things that just happen, there's human agency. God uses means. And humans are those means. Esther and Mordecai aren't just passive. They're moving parts in God's plan. So, in answer to question one, where is God? He's there. He's sovereignly in control of all world events, big and small. Second, he deeply cares about his people, his promise, in his name. One commentator says it this way. In Esther, we can see that even after Israel has been unfaithful to him, God remains faithful and is preserving a people for his name's sake. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is still alive and well. We'll see this truth over and over and over again, even when it appears that God's people are going to be extinguished. So where is God? He's there. He's everywhere. Second, does he care about his people? A resounding yes. Now, with the time we have left, let's dive into the first eight verses of Esther. Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory in the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 
180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of periphery. Marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Here's what I want us to see in this text. Only God is great with a capital G. I'm grateful to Landon Dowden and for his insights on this section, which have proved incredibly helpful. He rightly points out that the main point of this section is this. No matter how pagan or powerful a ruler seems to be, he or she can never thwart God's providence. Amen? How much do we need to hear that truth as Christians? Look with me at verse 1. It says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. So who is this Ahasuerus? Well, this was actually his Hebrew name. His Greek name, a more popular name, was Xerxes. As mentioned earlier, he's the grandson of Cyrus the Great and the son of the Persian king named Darius. Right from the beginning, the author of Esther, by the way, we don't know who the author of Esther is. While I lean toward it being Mordecai himself because of what we read in chapter 9, verse 20, we simply don't know who the author is. But the author of Esther wants us to know that this is a true historical narrative. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. He's specific about who he's referencing so that you can see it as a historical record. It'd be like a modern historian saying, now in the days of George W. Bush, the George W. Bush who was president on 9-11 when the Twin Towers fell in New York City. You could go and look up facts about this guy and corroborate the story. It's historical narrative. Second, he wants us to understand that this guy, Ahasuerus or Xerxes, was a big deal. He reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. This isn't a small-town mayor. He was literally the most powerful man in the world at the time. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, within his kingdom, the Persians had not one, not two, not three, but four different capital cities, one of which was Susa. This was where the king would spend his winter months. Can you imagine that? Four different palaces. 
a vast empire, and four palaces. Wow! We're meant to be impressed. Let's keep going. Verses 3 and 4. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. What's going on here? Well, historically speaking, we know that Xerxes' father, Darius, had tried to consolidate the empire by conquering Greece, a much smaller area just to the west of them. But he failed. He was soundly defeated in Athens. The world superpower embarrassed by Greece. And Xerxes, Darius' son, hadn't forgotten. So, in the third year of his reign, in 483 BC, Xerxes decides, I'm going to attack Greece, vindicate my family name. But he's politically wise. He realizes that the sting of that last loss was just as much in the minds and hearts of the people and the military leaders. So what does he do? He throws a party to show off his wealth and his power and his prestige. Look again at verse 4. This is key. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. This party isn't about generosity, is it? It's about pride and arrogance. We might call it the, the come and see how awesome Xerxes is party. Karen Jobes explains that Xerxes displayed his wealth to show that he could make good on his promise and reward those who would rally to support his campaign. He wants them all to see how great he is and that he's powerful enough to stomp out the Greeks this time. And this is insane. This, this party that's all about Xerxes, it, it goes on for 180 days. That's six months. Six months of all about how great Xerxes is. Have you ever been around someone like this? They're constantly reminding you of how great they are. They take any and every opportunity to one-up everyone around them and let you know who they are. That's Xerxes, or Ahasuerus in a nutshell. He's a narcissist. That's what the author of Esther wants us to see. And the narrative continues on, verses 5 through 7. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of periphery, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Isn't this wild? After six months of partying, he throws a week-long after-party. This time, 
not for all of the nobles and governors, but for all of the people in Susa, both great and small. And the text goes out of the way to describe the extravagance. Violet hangings, fine linens, silver rods, marble, gold couches. You're reading that right, gold couches. If you've ever seen the TV show Cribs, it's kind of like that where they tour some famous person's house and, and show you all of the absolutely ridiculous things that they have. This guy has everything. He's wealthy, he's powerful, and he's prideful. But he's not sovereign. That's what the beginning chapter of Esther is setting us up to see. Remember our main point. No matter how pagan or how powerful a ruler seems to be, he or she can never thwart God's providence. And that brings us to verse 8. So far, everything about the king has been a portrait of power and greatness. But then we get to verse 8. It's subtle, but the author's letting us in on a secret for the first time. This is where it all begins to unravel. Look at verse 8. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Do you see that? What's being said is this. The emperor has no clothes. While he, he rules over 127 provinces, while he has four palaces and couches of gold, he actually has no real control over his people. He's trying to legislate every little detail. He's throwing a party, and even at a party, he's giving edicts about drinking. Who does that? Someone with no real power. You can, you can drink or, or not drink at my party, but it's because I say so. I even created a law for it. This is bureaucracy at its finest. Ian Deguid comments here that real power does not consist in regulating such detailed minutia. In fact, the tendency to regulate such details is actually a sign of weakness, not power. The stories that circulate of government regulations requiring bananas to conform to certain criteria of straightness and size do not impress us as shining examples of government efficiency, but rather of bureaucrats run amok compensating for lack of real significance by an inordinate attention to minuscule details. Do you see it? He's, he's trying to control every single aspect of his people's lives via legislation. He has no real power. Two points of application. When you're in the situation of being an exile, under a powerful, prideful, pagan king. Number one, don't despair. God sees. He knows. He's here. He's working. Even when you don't see him. Even when it seems he's not around. God's sovereignty is above and over all human sovereigns of this world. The promise of Genesis 3.15 still stands. God ultimately wins. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, Satan 
blues. Even in the face of powerful pagan tyrants, we can have hope. We can live faithful lives day in and day out, trusting God even when we seem to be outgunned as Christians. Whether it's a hard boss or a governor or even a president, Democrat or Republican, who doesn't share your convictions, you can rest knowing that only God is all-powerful. Psalm 97, verses 1 through 5, says this. This is such good truth. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Only God is great. Second, consider the contrast between this king, Ahasuerus, and God. Ahasuerus wanted to control every aspect of his people's lives, but in service of himself. It was for his good alone. And not theirs. God also desires for every aspect of our lives to be under his authority. But it's for our good. He's ultimately sovereign. And he's omnibenevolent or all good. And every command that God gives us, big or small, it's for our benefit and for his glory. When we seek to to hold on to control outside of God's commands, it's to our detriment every single time. Hasuerus and God could not be more different. Another contrast. Dowden comments here that Hasuerus threw a party for 180 days to celebrate his glory. But from the moment he, meaning God, spoke into existence the heavens and the earth, All of creation has never ceased declaring God's glory. A display of evil's power does not mean a diminishing of God's. God has no rival and no equal. He has never been, is not, and will never be threatened or thwarted. See this. Ahasuerus was the biggest deal of his time. And yet, he had no real power compared to God who holds the world in his hands. The contrast here is clear. Ahasuerus is meant to remind us that there's a better king and a better kingdom. Friends, Jesus is better than any prideful, powerful pagan king. Derek Prime so worshipfully points out that there is much fuel for adoration of God when we realize that the king of Persia is no comparison to the king of kings. While all of Persia was subject to Ahasuerus, all of creation is subject to Christ. He reigns in and over every nation. He is not simply king of the earth, but king of the universe. He rules over the living and the dead. He is ruler over all who exercise rule in the world. He is lord over all lords and king over all kings. All powers and beings in the universe must ultimately bow the knee to him. 
He goes on to point out that while Ahasuerus threw a feast for prominent servants, Christ throws a feast for pardoned sinners. See the contrast here. From the beginning of the book of Esther, we're meant to catch a glimpse of the fleeting glory of worldly power, contrasted to the never-ending splendor and sovereignty of God. When we as humans look left and look right, it's so easy for us to, to, number one, think that we're great somehow compared to others. Or, two, to fold under the faux greatness of worldly leaders. But when we look up, we see God's greatness. And everything else is small by comparison. We're left in awe and in positions of humility and worship before our God. That's where Esther wants us this morning. Though unseen, God is all around us in the stuff that just happens. He cares for you deeply, and his promises never fail. Let's pray.